Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. And it's an all-new look podcast. We hope you like our new logo, but don't worry, the content of the podcast itself will be its usual variable quality. An election is coming sooner or later, but what will happen? Nobody knows or can really know for certain. But why don't we know? And what do we know about the unknowable competing forces which will decide who runs the country? The British Election Study has been surveying people about how they voted and why since 1964. A new book, Electoral Shocks, The Volatile Voter in a Turbulent World, is out in December, by which time we might have already had the election. So I'm delighted to be joined by three of its authors to explain what is going on and what to keep an eye on during the forthcoming campaign. Professor Chris Posser, Professor Jeff Evans, and this is Professor Jane Green. British election study data over time shows us that more people are switching their vote choice than ever before, and that has an increasing rise. And it's meant that in the last two general elections in particular, there's been a high point of switching. So roughly 40 or so percent of the electorate has switched their vote choice between elections. But if you look over three elections, we see that roughly half of the electorate is changing how it votes over subsequent elections. That's a very different picture to the past. That's a very different environment. The reason that's happened, we argue, is a combination of long-term trends and long-term changes, such as weakening party attachments, smaller parties getting voters, but then not being able to hold on to them, and also short, sharp events, what we call electoral shocks, major, abrupt changes. Everybody knows notices them, they change the basis of vote choice, change how parties compete, and those shocks are having very important consequences within that volatile electoral context. Okay, let's talk about those shocks though. What what are those big shocks? I mean, probably everybody knows what they are, but what are the big shocks that you think have played a part in this? So obviously there's the kind of normal ebb and flow of politics, and there's lots of things that are surprising and that take us by surprise, but sometimes there are events or changes that, you know, you just can't help but know about them, even if you don't follow politics, even if you don't kind of, you know, pay attention to the news, you'll have known for, so, so going back in the shocks that we look at, you'll have known that there was a sharp rise in immigration and that there was a major problem for the government in being able to control immigration and the salience, the importance of that issue rose very substantially. You'll have known too that there was a financial crisis. You know, you can avoid that. I mean, everybody knew there was a financial crisis. And that was a very important factor, not only in the 2010 election that followed just after, but also in 2015. So shocks can have these long lasting consequences. 
the referendum in Scotland was hugely important, the coalition government with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, big change in the whole form of government. And also, of course, the shock that is still, you know, going on, I would say rumbling, but, you know, having this almighty impact now is the EU referendum and the consequence that we can see just you know, even less than a year later in 2017, but of course that hasn't stopped. And so if there's another general election, that shock is still ongoing. It's happening in a very volatile environment and it is yet to play out. It's yet to find its course. It's yet to be resolved. And so, you know, judging how an election might turn now is very tricky in the middle of that shock. And Chris, is it that those shocks do more than just, you know, know, people take notice of them, but it's sort of uh, it's a jolt to how they view politics and the way, you know, if they're somebody who might have always considered themselves a conservative voter, these are the sort of shocks which might make them think twice about that. You know, they've always been a conservative voter, but they didn't like austerity that came from the financial crash. Or it's an electric shock to, which might wake someone up out of what they've always considered themselves in their own political position. Yeah, so we think that electoral shocks can work through a number of ways. So one way it could work is that it changes how you see the political parties, right? So you might previously have looked at, at Labour and thought, okay, this is my party, you know, maybe they did a good job with the economy for, you know, quite a few years under Blair. And then, you know, there's the financial crash and all of a sudden your view of that party as a competent uh, economic governor changes. But it can also work in a, in a second way, which is that it changes what criteria people are using to make their political choices. So you might have the same opinions about, you know, whether the Conservatives and Labour are on the economy and how competent they are on economic uh, management and that sort of thing. But that might not matter to you because what matters to you now is Brexit and where they where they stand on Brexit. And so you do see some people who, you know, who have strange uh, views, you know, in terms of what we might think of as the the natural uh, voter for for that, you know, one party or another. But they're choosing it because of uh, a different issue. And um, one of my sort of favorite statistics about uh, the 2017 election in our data is that the average Labour voter in 2017 is actually slightly more economically right-wing than they were in 2015. And when you think about Corbyn, this sounds really weird, right? You know, the most left-wing Labour leader in absolutely ages. But they're picking up loads of people who are on the sort of liberal end of the the sort of social uh, conservatism spectrum. And, you know, these are people who care about Brexit. They voted Remain. And so a lot of these people are going to Labour for for non-economic reasons. And the sort of net effect of this is that actually the, the sort of economic terms of Labour's electorate is actually slightly more centrist than it used to be, which sounds very, very Don't odd. Don't tell Jeremy Corbyn that. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, I suppose we should have started with it. How does the British election study actually work so that you can track people and how the different ways they vote? Well, we follow up at regular waves on 30,000 people and we follow them up every few months. And it's the same people you go back to to yeah. sort of track. So it's yes. not like an opinion poll where they might phone... No. different people and then try to match them up it's literally the same people so, so you know everything tracking. about them and what they said before and what they said many times before so we can see how their views change over a long time how sort of uh, out of kilter with previous studies is this new move of 40% shifting between elections well we've done a lot of studies which use the same sort of design back to 1964 to 66 and that's what we showed and back then not a lot of people changed and it's now gone up to say, say 50% of people are floating voters. And back then it was 10 or 15 or something. 
And presumably the 50% who voted between or switched between 2010 and 2017, we could see more join that because if they're already floating and they're, they've cut their allegiances, possibly even more next time out, whenever that might be, could change as well. Yeah, the more you actually depart from the major parties and join small parties, the more you get used to defecting and the less you have a continuous biography of voting for a party, the more you're likely to be up for grabs. You know, the bonds of loyalty have been broken. And Jane, who's the stickiest? Who's, who are the 51%, the other side, if you like, who are, is there a certain type of person who is less likely to switch, whether it's you know, an older person or a Labour Leave voter or a traditional Tory voter? Yeah, so it's really interesting to think what they might have been, you know, in the past and what they might be in an upcoming election. Those answers might be different. So if you think about elections that we've we've been able to study so far, we would say that it tend to be those people that um, hold a stronger party attachment and that also have a greater habit of voting for one of the two major parties because we're identifying these effects of weakening party ID and also voting for smaller parties. But now, of course, we are also in this leave and remain world. And so it's quite possible that you'll see people who are switching within a leave grouping and within a remain grouping. So perhaps then the people who are loyal are going to be different in an upcoming election. We just don't know yet. Um, but it's not just say that just because there's been a, a type of person who switched in the past that that's necessarily the type going forward and also it's not just to say well yes you know younger voters have weaker partisan attachment than for example their parents would have done historically over time if we generalize but also we know that older voters have voted for the conservative party then they've gone to ukip maybe they've gone back somewhere maybe they've gone to the brexit party so we're not kind it's, of it's painting not one picture no yeah. exactly yeah and, and what about um uh, the idea of sort of smaller parties being a sort of gateway to switching. So you've got traditionally the two big parties, Labour and the Tories, that switching between them is less likely than going from the main parties to smaller parties and vice versa. Is that right? So what we find um, is one of the reasons we've seen increasing volatility, so increasing switching between elections, is that the, the smaller parties have done better, but the smaller parties then can't retain their voters. And so they're having to replace their voters continually, whereas there tends to be less um, switching between the two major parties, except that in 2017, we saw the highest switching between the two major parties, still lower on average, but nevertheless higher, relatively speaking, if you look over history, you know, over the series of election studies that we have since 1964. And so we're even seeing switching there too now. Chris, how is it that some of the smaller parties have managed to take hold in a way that for so long, but it was just dominated by the two main parties? Uh, so one of the really important changes in British politics was the introduction of proportional representation for the European Parliament elections in 1999. And of course, at the same time, we also get uh, the Scottish Parliament and the, and the Welsh Assembly. And the, the sort of key difference here is that the, the more proportional system makes it a lot easier for minor parties to get voters, right? Because it's, it's, uh, there's less risk of wasting your vote on a party that doesn't win um, you know, a seat. And what you see, if you, if you look at the sort of number of parties that are winning votes in, in European Parliament elections, from uh, the sort of 70s into uh, the early 90s, it's, it's largely in parallel with the sort of national party system. And then once uh, the proportional system is introduced, there's, a, there's an explosion over the course of uh, the next few European Parliament elections where uh, more and more minor parties start to win votes. And then you start to see that there's a spillover effect where 
you know, these parties, maybe people are looking around and going, oh, well, you know, I voted for them last time, maybe I'll vote for them this time. And they're also seeing that other people are, are supporting these parties. So they seem like they, they might be more electorally viable. And so, you know, these parties start to do better in national elections as well as the European Parliament and the sort of regional elections. So to what extent then is, because obviously UKIP was one of the big beneficiaries of the introduction of PR and then used that to extra influence on the Tory party, which led to the UFO. So is it all, is it all thanks to, to the EU introducing PR that we've ended up with Brexit? Um, not completely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it's also important to say it was Tony Blair that introduced PR. Oh, it was Tony PR. Blair. So it's not, so it's it's Tony Blair's fault. Tony Blair's fault. Well, Jeff might tell you later that it's Tony Blair's fault as well. Uh, <laughs> for different reasons. But um, uh, so, so one of the interesting patterns, if, if you look at the 2004 and the 2009 European Parliament elections, UKIP does really well in those elections as well, but then they, they drop off, right? So there is something else. It's not just that they sort of built up a momentum over time. It's that, you know, 2014 came along and they'd already been doing well in the opinion polls. Like the issue of immigration uh, was really salient. And so they were picking up steam uh, over that issue. And then they did really well in the EP elections. And then the thing that's different to the previous occasions is that they kept that momentum going. And I think that is what uh, put the pressure on the Conservatives rather than just the fact that they did, you know, quite well in the, in the, the, the EP elections. OK, but let's move on and talk. We need to talk about Brexit because that is the thing which is hanging over uh, all of this. Jeff, just explain to us how we've gone from a sort of left to right, leave to remain situation in politics right now. Yeah, OK. Well, uh, obviously, after the result of the referendum, uh, the parties responded to that. The government responded particularly by emphasising a hard Brexit and a tough line in immigration. And it can do this now because there's no longer a guarantee of free movement from the European Union. And once it had done that, it was able to actually seek out those people who had voted UKIP. It was able to attract them, appeal to them and say, look, we're going to give you what you want. Uh, they were credible. David Cameron for years had been saying he was going to reduce immigration. Couldn't do it. Not while we're in the EU. But now Theresa May was able to do that. And it seems odd nowadays to think of Theresa May as a hard Brexiteer, given what happened the last year or two. But then she was. She was the Boris Johnson of 2016-17, and it worked to appeal to these UKIP voters. Once you start to appeal on anti-immigration, anti-EU, socially conservative uh, agenda, you attract people like that to the party. And those things are what made the difference between 2015 and 2017 in terms of the Conservative Party's appeal, not say the standard economic redistribution, left-right debates on tax or spending. Um, so that's how that worked. And it changed voting from one more concerned with the economy to one more concerned with them. Um, I mean, not just concerned, but also concerned with where we stand on things like uh, control over our borders and uh, how traditional our values are. So, and it's it's not unique to Britain. We've seen some of these things going on in European countries as nativist populist parties have actually emphasised these sorts of things. But because we're we're a majoritarian system. It's the major party who had to take this on board in order to beat off the people outflanking them. And that changed the nature of major party competition to being less about the economy and more about morality. And that shift is a more cultural politics, if that's a, not an oxymoron. Is that, that's not unique to the UK either, but is it just that the, the Brexit debate has become the vehicle that that's being expressed through? 
Whereas in, in America, it's essentially, you know, whether or not you like Donald Trump is, is the sort of the, the divide in, in America. Um, the Brexit de- debate, as it were, has is, is changed what was possible and allowed us to develop that sort of issue. You couldn't do it before Brexit because no one could represent the anti-immigration poll before Brexit. So it spread the range of opportunities. And all those people who felt they were being excluded, ignored, who voted UKIP or didn't vote, there's the potential then for them to vote for an effective, competent major party would run on what they wanted. And what the Tory party have done is they've taken a very clear pro-Brexit position and they've managed to suck up some of the old UKIP vote and potentially some of the Brexit party vote. On the other side, the Remain side of this culture war, it's less clear who is the main beneficiary of that because the Labour Party is not totally clear on its position on it and the Lib Dems aren't necessarily seen as the as one of the two major parties to exploit that. Certainly in 2017 that was the case. The Labour Party took a very centrist and careful position not to be on one side or the other. The Lib Dems were not an effective political force then. They were still suffering, suffering the costs of the, the coalition and various other things that happened in previous years. Since then, however, and this isn't actually part of the book, but we can, we, we've seen this happen, um, the Lib Dems have been emboldened to take a more strong revoke position and are growing in the polls too. So this will be an interesting case of whether, in fact, you can see both sides of this cultural divide mobilising in relatively extreme positions. Chris, you're nodding. Is it at all plausible for the Lib Dems to replace Labour in this sort of increasingly polarised politics. <laughs> um, Bearing in mind that we don't make any predictions yeah, anymore, the whole point of this book is to insist you can't make predictions. You know, it's certainly, it's certainly possible. I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, likely to happen or, or unlikely to happen. But I think the, the sort of key thing is that one of the reasons the Lib Dems didn't do well in 2017, even though actually a lot of Remainers uh, had, had sort of more or less forgiven the Lib Dems for being part of the coalition, was that they just weren't seen as as viable in many seats. And so people thought, oh, well, you know, it would be nice if I could vote for you, but I'm not going to vote for you. Uh, Whereas this time, you know, with the Lib Dems riding high in the polls, and then they had very good European Parliament elections, they've been doing very well at at local elections and local by-elections. And and this has traditionally been the way that Lib Dems have built up their sort of local viability by demonstrating to voters that actually, uh, you know, look at us. They they have the, you know, the famous winning here bar chart of sort of dubious... uh, Dubious sort of... But um, it's exactly that sort of thing. And so if people start to see the Lib Dems as being viable, you know, maybe they have a few polls who, uh, which show them ahead consistently. Maybe there's a sort of crazy forecast that says, hey, look, you know, if the Lib Dems win this much of the vote, then they're going to win, uh, you know, all the seats and that sort of stuff. Then maybe people would, would start to believe that and then you know it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy but whether or not that happens I don't know and I'm definitely not saying that is what is going to happen um, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I suppose that you know one of the things here is that how many seats are the Liberal Democrats currently second 
or how many are they currently third? And, you know, when we saw in 2015 lots of splintering of the vote, it's then harder for all of the parties to get into the second place because you've got other parties that are competing for that position. When you saw in 2017 a high vote for the two largest parties, and that obviously wasn't going to be the, the moment for the Liberal Democrats to break through. So the Liberal Democrats have got to be competitive in enough places to make them, I mean, so, to, you know, to suggest that the Liberal Democrats would be more competitive than the Labour Party in more seats than the Labour Party is currently in second or the most competitive place. You know, that's a very, very, very big change. And it's entirely possible for the Lib Dems to beat Labour on overall vote share, but end up with a fraction of the number of seats just because they end up piling up votes in places where they're not competitive. Yeah, so if the Liberal Democrats take lots of votes from the Conservatives, for example, but the Conservatives, have those that happens in safe Conservative seats, or if indeed the Liberal Democrats take votes from the Labour Party, but that happens in safe Conservative seats or in safe Labour seats, then that's when you'll get that kind of outcome. And it's not to say that this can't change but the local competitive situation is crucial when you you know it's all very well to talk about you know who's riding high in the polls what matters on election day is which party forms a majority or which party forms the largest number of seats so you know it's all to play for though it's not all about cultural politics there is still an element of the economic thing long-term attachments to labor and certain seats that aren't probably up to grabs even if they're a bit brexity um, we can't say it's not a hundred percent this new dimension it's very much still elements of the other and they will favor labor over the lib Dems. And, and that's where in places where there were some places where people would self-define as a leave voter over a conservative and there were other places where people would define as a labor voter over being a leave and i suppose that's the when they ultimately come to put the cost in the vault. Um, Jeff, you talked uh, previously about sort of drawing a comparison with Northern Irish politics of how if, if it is more polarised, in the end it's the, it's, it can be the parties that take the more, more extreme position that end up possibly. That's right. If you do have a situation where you've got hardcore leave identifiers and hardcore remain identifiers and you can't really cross over very easily those people and appeal to the other side... What has happened historically in many other societies is what's known as polarizing in order to become the, 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 the true party of that group. It happened in Northern Ireland with the destruction, effectively, the more centrist parties on both sides of the divide and the replacement with the DUP and Sinn Féin is the, is the only major parties. Now, for that to happen in Britain, it would take time and quite some degree of change from what we are now. What we are seeing, of course... Um, the Conservative Party competing as a relatively extreme party on that issue in order to destroy the Brexit Party. And it's not got that far yet on the other side, but the, the, the Liberal Democrats are at least, as it were, moving in that direction to give it a try. Um, it's fair to say that even in Northern Ireland, this is a more effective strategy amongst, say, the Unionists than it was uh, amongst the Nationalists. Whereas the union is sort of a massive reversal of the bill on this basis. So um, it's an open thing to consider that once you get into this identity politics, this polarized identity politics, it, you're not competing for that median voter on the nicely distributed dimension. You're competing for two 
poles, two groups. So I should explain, that you're, so the, the old fashioned way of doing politics, I'll just explain what you're doing with your hands, is it was a sort of, from left to right, it was a hump in the middle. There was, there was a centre and both parties, but both of the main parties had to compete for that centre in order to build a coalition of support. And actually what we've ended up with is two humps, one leave, one remain, and there's not a lot of people in the middle of the sort of undecided, mushy centrists who, who don't really have a view on Brexit. That's, and what we now have, we don't have a very loyal electorate. So if you stretch out to the other side, you'll get punished back on the home side. That's one of the implications of the book, the volatility, a sort of more fickle electorate who will punish you if you stray away. So the incentive is not to do that. Theresa May tried to do a, a compromise policy. It failed disastrously, in Parliament at least. It's fair to say that people aren't going to go and try that. The Labour Party being pressured not but to I was try to say that. that. So what about the Labour Party's position? Because it does feel like they're, you know, that, uh, Jeremy Corbyn said quite explicitly he wants to bring the country together and appeal to both leave and remain. But the, the risk is there's not many people in the bottom of that valley between the two who he's appealing to. There's not at the moment. I mean, I think, you know, one, one important thing to say here is that left-right still matters. And so, you know, it's not to say everything's Brexit. So that might be part of their view. The second thing to say is that, you know, our argument and our evidence suggests that context really matters and issues can become important. Now, the thing with the European Union, it was always a cross-cutting issue. You know, there were people on the left who had leave and remain kind of, you know, pro-European, anti-European positions. People on the right did too. So that's you know that's what's problematic about that particular issue but it also rose in importance rose in salience because of a shock because of the eu referendum in before that immigration and the rise in salience of immigration so this hasn't come from from nowhere um it's contextual it's because of what's happening now and so what has to change for that kind of distribution of opinion that's got those two polarised positions to be less important is what then moves you back onto that left-right dimension. It's very difficult to know whether or not we can go back to normality. I feel like we've crossed the Rubicon and we'll never go back. But, you know, who knows? Who knows? OK, well, in a moment, we'll move on and we'll talk about what might actually happen in an election campaign uh, as and when it comes. We'll be back after this short break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley, and this is Chris Prosser. So one of the things we, we find in the book is that there's an increasingly large number of people who are up for grabs in elections, people who switch uh, their votes between elections. And one of the consequences of this is that it's likely that campaigns matter more than ever. Right? So if you look back to the 60s when you know, maybe 85, 90% of people would vote the same way between elections, more or less whatever happened in politics, we're, we're not in that territory anymore. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of messages that uh, politicians try and sell during the campaigns, the, the door knocking, uh, the leafleting, all these things, they, they, they really have uh, an important impact on, on how voters are seeing the parties, how viable they're, they're seeing the parties and, you know, what issues they think are important. So campaigns matter probably more than ever. It's interesting because... Some of my colleagues, like Phil Collins, who comes on the podcast quite a lot, is always telling me the, camp- the campaign in 2017 didn't matter. The Tories started on 40%, they ended on 40%. <laughs> Theresa May's, uh, nothing has changed, stuff is all sort of... But I suppose, actually, if you look under the bonnet, that 40% might be a different 40% to the 40% she started with. Really? And it could have been better or worse, depending on how the campaign played out. Precisely. I mean, one of the things that we show is that even if you look over time, so if you think, oh, that was a really stable period in politics, there wasn't much change there in terms of the party's vote shares, that doesn't mean that there's loads of churn going on under the surface. And it's only by looking at the same people over this long period of time in the BES data that you see there's a there's a trend, it's increasing. So even in a, in a stable period, you might get lots of switching. Now, in the 2017 campaign, what there was a significant change of Labour undecided going back to the Labour Party and there was a very significant change in how the two leaders were, were evaluated by the public and it mattered a lot. And so le- leadership matters, the, the, the performance of the leaders matters as well, does it? Yeah, it, it definitely matters. It, it's very hard to uh, put a precise sort of numbers on how much leaders matter because you, nev- you never see the, the sort of parallel universe where, where someone other than Jeremy Corbyn presents exactly Jeremy Corbyn's policies but isn't him. You know? So it's hard to disentangle the sort of positions he's taking from you know, some sort of charismatic uh, approach. But we certainly think that uh, leaders matter. And you, and you really saw this in the, in the 2017 campaign where you know, a lot of people have written off Corbyn and then he gets on the campaign trail and he's sort of in his element. And then there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, whereas as some people start to realize that actually maybe he's not as bad at sort of winning votes as, as all that, they're like, oh, well, actually, you know, the main reason I disliked him was that I thought he was not going to win other votes. And so, you know, there's this self-fulfilling prophecy of him, him becoming more and more popular. And you also see with uh, Nigel Farage, he is very, very important for, you know, first UKIP. I mean, he's, he is the Brexit party. He is the Brexit party. And, and to a large extent, he, he was UKIP. Yeah. Obviously, you know, there was, there was more sort of, uh, um, I don't know what the right word is. Um, infrastructure. Infrastructure yeah, around, yeah, yeah. around UKIP. Uh, but he, he was very important. And you, you saw this as soon as he stepped down after the referendum, you know, aside from UKIP sort of imploding in other uh, ways. Basically, people were like, oh, well, it's not Farage anymore. Let's just, you know, uh, see. And you know, there's a, there's a good pub quiz question in how many leaders they had and who, who only lasted <laughs> 18 days or, or yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Well, I remember we were trying to write surveys uh, at the time. And one of our questions is about how much you like the, the leader. And I think we, we had someone in the draft and then we had to change it. And then I think by the time we got in the field, we had actually changed it again. <laughs> so it's quite hard to keep up. <laughs> 
Jeff, what else matters in an election campaign? Do, do people tune, I suppose, if people are a floating, a self-identifying floating voter, do they pay more attention, therefore, to what's going on in a campaign? Um, some of them will. If they are self-identified as floaters, then they might well be still making their mind up. Um, if they're just really not very interested and unlikely to vote, they won't. But those who are still making their mind up are likely to pay more attention. Um, but it doesn't change really the calculus we're talking about here, which is, is it about a leader performance matters? It has mattered for quite some time. In some leaders, it doesn't matter too much. They're just neutral. Others are a disaster and others are a real bonus. Um, so that, that's been around for a while. Um, obviously, if some disastrous TV performance happens, we know that this can impact upon, upon voters. Um, or even a positive one, you know, as Nick Clegg or, found, so that, you know, one afternoon on the telly. Although it, uh, there was a drop off. Yes, there, exactly. Yeah, 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 it did drop off. But it's, it's a matter of whether you can prevent the day, decay from being really too rapid on those sorts of things. Um, and then, of course, there are issues too. I mean, Theresa May running on bringing back fox hunting and grammar schools is probably not her best a move. And of course, her, her um, death tax type social care policy was not didn't go down brilliantly well, must be said. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about now, because obviously we're all obsessed with Brexit. Brexit is playing out constantly in the background. It's how we think the country split down the middle. And Theresa May called what she thought was a Brexit election in 2017. And actually the Labour Party went off and talked about other stuff, those school, you know, hospital parking charges or, you know, fox hunting or uh, all that sort of stuff. So in the end, are we not as divided on Brexit as we think we are? That we, When we come to an election, do people make their decision about how to vote on other things? Do you think, James? Most people make their mind up before the election, even now. The Brexit effect has happened by the start of that election to a large degree. Yeah. So you've got to take that into account. The actual campaign had various things that weren't purely about Brexit in it. But um, nonetheless, prior to then, UKIP had been wiped out yeah. by the Conservatives. I think it's, you know, it's absolutely important to recognise as well that Brexit isn't number one thing for everybody. And also, so there's that. So there's, so there's first of all, Brexit isn't everything. And we still care about left-right issues and the National Health Service and everything else. And the second thing to say is Brexit for many people isn't just about the European Union. It is about public spending. It is about, you know, what happens. It is about kind of you know, austerity versus economic growth and business and all the rest of it. So so it's kind of tricky to disentangle those things. Um, but it's but it's also fair to say that if something knocks Brexit off the agenda, and imagine that world, um, you know, hard to imagine that happening in a campaign period, but, you know, not impossible to imagine it happening over a longer term period that, you know, we'll see other issues coming to the fore. We should mention, that we, so we're sitting recording in a room in Westminster, there's helicopters hovering overhead. I mean, right outside the building we're in, there are massive climate change protests, Extinction Rebellion. Is that, is the environment, climate change, impacting on people's sort of list of concerns? Where is that now on people? I mean, it's, it's up the news agenda in a way it hasn't been for probably ever. Is that having any impact on the way people view politics and how they vote with? Um, hmm. So, to be honest, if you ask me that after the next election, I'll be able to tell you. Uh, I can, I can <laughs> speculate wildly now. Like yeah. um, so, we, we certainly have, we, we think it has the potential uh, to be an important issue. And um, 
So like everyone involved in the uh, sort of something to do with election business, uh, we have been very, very busily writing our next round of surveys that we're going to field around the election whenever it is. And we talked about the environment. We're like, well, you know, this is a massive issue. You know, what are we saying? And we, we have asked people about their environmental, environmental views, uh, you know, for a long time. But we're like, OK, do we need more questions? And so we do think it has the potential, you know, to be, be an issue. Uh, but one thing we say in the book is that it's not just that you know something out there happens. It's about how parties and politicians respond to what's happening, right? And I think with the environment, it's it's a sort of slightly weird issue, right? Like there's obviously the Green Party who you know have a very clear sort of you know this is our number one issue, uh, this is our position on it. But actually, most of the parties are fairly pro-environment. Like no one is out and out not and, and, and it so. would require the Tories to decide that they didn't believe climate change was happening yeah. in order for it to become a battleground that, yeah know, exactly it's a bit like broadband rollout there was no party arguing they don't want broadband to be rolled out so it doesn't become a big political issue yeah and, and so the, these sorts of issues where everyone more or less agrees on on you know what they want we, we call valence issues in the sort of academic world and uh, it does become a question of who is you know best at managing issues and like how credible are they implementing uh, particular policies and that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's at the moment it's being dwarfed by uh, Brexit. And so it's not really, doesn't seem to be sort of coming in. Um, you know, whether that changes, if there's some massive environmental disaster and it sort of comes a, a thing, maybe it will become the top issue on the agenda. So what we argue is that, you know, if you, if there's a major shock, if there's a major change, right, it should be abrupt, it should be massive, people should notice it. Um, and we also say it should be relevant to party politics. Um, so it's got to kind of cut through public opinion. It's got to be different. It's got to cut through. So if you were asking me, what would I advise the Extinction Rebellion um, campaigners of how to make this a, an issue that really is so important to an election that all the parties really start, you know, manoeuvring in a very concerted manner? You know, there needs to be a, a change. You know, some something that everybody takes notice of. It needs to enable voters to kind of really recognize that this is going on and it needs to be relevant to party politics so the party's going to have to start competing around it and 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 yes it's true that nobody's actively arguing against the environment but you know they're not competing on it they're not making it a number one issue in politics and and of course as chris says you know it's being dwarfed by brexit which is of course part of the concern for the extension rebellion people that you know brexit is knocking this off the agenda when it should be at the top and i think the importance of some real shock is very important is crucial here because although everybody can say warm words about the environment, nobody's going to stick their neck out and say we're doubling the price of petrol and diesel. Warm words are easy, but it probably takes some sort of quite pronounced shock to actually get a party to stick its neck out in some way. Well, I suppose on, a, on, a, on the detail. On a, on a, in a smaller scale, the Conservatives going into the 2010 election trying to outflank the Labour Party on promising they would make spending cuts when, you know, I suppose if you can get frame a narrative around that then it, maybe it's possible you're right just a straightforward we're going to double the price of your driving a car it's probably not going to be the massive vote winner um let's just um before we uh, wind up when do you think the election's going to be i know you're not going to make a prediction about what will happen you obviously think it might be before the book comes out which is why we're having this conversation so, yeah <laughs> well, you know you know academics write books and they think they're frightfully important um, we wrote this one, and it's obviously not just the three of us. There's five, um, seven of us on the, who wrote, who were behind the book, and five of us who are on the current team. And we felt, actually, we think this is this is a big deal. 
there's a big change and this is how we should be understanding this and there could be an election before December 13th which is when the book comes out and therefore we think that the, the likelihood is high enough that it was worth you know putting our research out there today and, and in, with the effort and the ambition to help us all understand a little bit better this kind of crazy world in which we're currently in. So when we do get this election for our listeners who are politics nerds if nothing else particular thing that they should keep an eye on is it leadership ratings is it a particular part of the country is it a what, what's a, a good thing for people trying to work out not without asking you to make a prediction but what we should be keeping an eye on during it during election campaign so i think we need to know what's going on with brexit i mean you, you know, to state the absolutely <laughs> obvious i mean it's like the elephants there isn't it in the room and you know trying to figure out what the election is going to, you know, what the outcome of the election is going to be when there's this unresolved huge thing that's dominating politics. So we need to know what are the parties going to campaign on in this absolutely pivotal moment and how not just individual parties, but what's the configuration of choices and how's that and, and you know, how's, how's the electorate going to respond to that? So that's number one. Number two is how's it going to play out in seats, which is, of course, a very different question. Chris? Uh, so I'm going to shamelessly steal something that Jane said to me yesterday, which was uh, <laughs> about polling, right? So there's a lot of questions about you know, how accurate are polls and are they getting it right? Are they getting it wrong? And the, the safe thing to say is that at least some of them are getting it wrong because they're, so, you know, they're so all over the place that we don't know. Uh, but the thing to look out for, I think, is, is changes in trends, right? So don't really pay too much attention to, oh, this one's one point ahead, this one's two points ahead. You know, have a look over the last week, you know, are they changing? Because if, you, if you'd done that during the 2017 campaign, you would have seen Labour going up and up and up and up and up. And, you know, okay, maybe they weren't quite, you know, level pegging in the polls just before polling day, but you could see that Labour were picking up, up momentum. And so I think that is the, the thing, you know, in terms of, you know, how is the campaign going? I'd be looking at the changes. Follow the trends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jeff? Hmm. I imagine if we have an election, it'll be after we've not left the European Union on October the 31st. And then the question that people are going to have to focus on is, is Boris able to unload the responsibility for that onto other political parties in Parliament? And, and, and if he is, does that allow him to, you know, close down the Brexit party vote? Because that's what he will need to do. Uh, so, I mean, that involves looking at the polls, but it's about a very particular issue because that's going to be centre stage. Um, the other one being, obviously, that are the Liberal Democrats really basically flattering us to deceive with their move to be a strong Remain position? Um, we can't really say up front, but I think that how people interpret the failure to leave the European Union on, on October the 31st is going to be quite crucial for the fate of the Conservative Party. And just finally, if it does end up being in December, how <laughs> an election in December, um, at what point does Christmas start overriding all other concerns and people just switch off from politics? Did you, will that have an impact, do you think, on an election if we end up in the middle of December and the weather, obviously? Uh, well, personally, I'm flying to Australia on uh, December the 13th, so it's going to have a big impact on me if there's an election. Um, but yeah, I think more, you know, more seriously, uh, potentially, yeah, because it's going to be dark and no, we, we sort of know from uh, local by-elections that turnout tends to drop uh, in winter because it's dark, it's wet, it's cold, you know, no one really wants to make the trek uh, over to the polling station. And then it, it also depends how much notice we have because, you know, people might 
actually get their act together and get postal votes and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to know how that will play out. Like, you know, who who doesn't care quite enough to go vote when it's, you know, a bit miserable outside and who's, you know, really mobilized and they'll go through a blizzard to get to the, the polling booth. Um, so, yeah, there's the potential for effects, but what they are is kind of too hard to say, I think. So we often think about older voters, you know, who are going to struggle to get to the polls. It's going to be cold, it's going to be wet, it's going to be dark and all the rest of it as well. And, you know, I mean, I'm just talking from my own perspective. If you have a child, you have a family, December's very, very, very hectic and yeah. busy and you're constantly doing stuff and you just want that to be your focus, really. You don't really want to do with, you know. It's you just putting the tree up or sitting and reading all the manifestos. I know what you're going to do. Where exactly. are you going to go? Where are you going to go? <laughs> Well, if we get basically old people and folks with kids not getting out to the polls and we get a reduced turnout, it suggests that the hardcore, passionate people who are younger without kids will have a disproportionate influence. Except they never do turn out. <laughs> so I've been lecturing where nobody turns out. <laughs> Maybe we should just boycott it and say, come back to us and do it in the spring. The Labour oh. Party's quite concerned about the fact that they know their traditional voters don't tend to turn out in, in the winter. They're willing to take the risk of delaying it till then, regardless, to avoid October. And is that why normally we have elections in the spring? Because the sun's out and everyone feels a bit more positive about stuff. There's a timing thing. People want to canvas. I mean, that's the other thing, right? You want to get your political party activists out and you want to get them out every day and you want to get them out from nine to ten. And, you know, that's that's an issue. Um, Summer holidays. Nobody wants to think about elections then. But also sometimes, of course, elections coincide with local elections and it's sort of it's election season, isn't it? So who knows? Maybe we'll be doing it in May 2020. It's entirely possible we do it in December and May, I think. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might be doing books with sort of never-ending, sort of collecting instalments and putting in extra chapters. Well, of course, when we write the, the book, we thought we were writing the book about the 2015 election. We didn't think we were writing about the 2015 and the 2017 election. And the, and the 2016 referendum. Yeah. All of which have turned up. And the 2019. I mean, we've missed the 2019 one, but even that's all turned up since before the book comes out. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's an endless well, it's <laughs> It's still uh, absolutely um, fascinating. Electoral shocks, the volatile voter in a turbulent world is out in December, uh, which you can either um, read to find out what's going to happen. You can read in the middle of the election campaign, depending on what actually um, happens. My huge thanks to Jane, Chris and Jeff. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen to Sun to my morning. Email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.